congregation of all Steelers fans. I see no Randy Bally, no Nathan Blake, and then Tyler had to come in with that hat. God almost did the work. So pray for Tyler. He's going to be really sad tonight, probably depressed at work tomorrow, so he'll need us. Um, man, you know, back in year one, I looked out at this crowd and thought, man, we're blowing up. So those of you that were around then, you're like, this is a big crowd for them. So we are um, coming back to um, our Jesus and Genesis series today. So it's been a while, uh, almost two months since we've uh, taken a look at this. So I kind of want to start off this morning by giving a little bit of a, a review on just some groundwork that we laid uh, during the study. And we began by acknowledging that Christ has been present since the very beginning of time. He, he has always been, and he will always be. And long before he arrived on this earth and was born in Bethlehem, he has been at work. And the Old Testament um, clearly reveals his earthly ministry that he was going to have through prophecies and foreshadowing throughout uh, its entirety. We made it clear that a, the Bible is not a collection of isolated stories, but it's one continuous story of Man's sin and God's redemption. And the characters that we've encountered along the way, Adam, Eve, um, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, are us. And through their stories, we get a, a glimpse into our own frailty, our own brokenness and humanness um, in each of them. They all needed a Savior to redeem them, to cover over their darkness and sin, just like you and I. And sometimes the allusions uh, to the future work and ministry of Christ um, have been very blatant as we looked at it. Sometimes the, the foreshadowing and, and stuff has just jumped off the page. Um, other times, um, you know, it, it's been more of we see these characters and they're really kind of a type of Christ. The theological term is, is a typology. And so, for instance, we saw in the story of Abraham and Isaac, we saw Isaac, you know, carrying the wood up for his own sacrifice, right? God had told Abraham to take his son Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. So we see Isaac carrying the wood. We see Isaac willingly submitting himself and laying himself down on the altar, surrendering to his father, trusting his father, even as his father stood over him with a knife to kill him. And so in that scene, we see this foreshadowing to Christ um, who would do the exact same thing um, for his father one day. So Isaac was a type of Christ. He foreshadowed the sacrificial life of Jesus thousands of years before the crucifixion. So when we left last time, a couple months ago, we were on Genesis 24. And if you remember, Abraham's son Isaac um, was married. Um, and remember his story, like Abraham and Sarah were, were barren. They couldn't have kids. God miraculously provided the son. And he took a wife named Rebekah from his father's tribe. So not amongst the people they were living now, but, but back in their, their former country. So we're going to pick it up today in Genesis 25, which is like right after Abraham dies. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. <clears throat> Genesis 25. Going to start in verse 21. So it says this, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant 
The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your room. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. It's a beautiful description. So they named him Esau. After this, his brothers came out, his brother with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So the first thing that we notice in this story um, is that just like Abraham's wife, Sarah, um, who was barren and unable to conceive, we see another miraculous birth. God opened Sarah's womb in order for her to have Isaac. Now he opens Rebekah's womb so that she can have these boys. And then later, uh, thousands of years later, we see him opening the womb of a virgin, Mary, who had a son in a miraculous way as well. And this is this interesting pattern throughout Scripture where God kind of moves in in a miraculous way to to carry out his purposes and his plans despite the the brokenness of the world or our own bodies um, and and really do that in going against kind of the normal order of things. So it says Rebecca gives birth to twins and the second one they named Jacob, which is the Hebrew word there means deceiver. And that's important to kind of keep in mind as as it's going to be relevant later in the story. But what else did you notice about the passage that we just read that went against kind of the cultural norms of the time? See, there's not as many of you to call on this morning, so you've got to be sharp. Yes. Yeah, the older was going to be serving the younger, okay? And really up until just very recent times, like being the oldest son was a very big deal. This is thousands of years, not just their culture, but even American culture um, as well. So this was, this was an interesting twist here. And time and again, God is in the business of choosing the surprising one to lead. You can look all through scripture. You see Moses, right? Moses was a murderer. Moses was a, a, a reluctant conversationalist, and God chose him to be the mouthpiece before Pharaoh uh, to take the Hebrews out of Egypt. You see him choosing David, the youngest of all the sons, the smallest, the weakest, right, to be the next king of Israel. And then after Jesus' death, you see Peter, this, this loudmouth, uneducated fisherman, is kind of the one to take the lead uh, of spreading the gospel. Then you see Paul, the murderer, the stutterer, being God's mouthpiece to um, the Gentiles to spread the gospel as well. And you can write many of our names into that story or pattern as well. Who are we that God would choose us and use us? And that's why Jesus spoke these, uh, to Paul these comforting words during his ministry. He said, May my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to make this point clear. Let me put that slide up. <clears throat> it says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Even scripture, um, you know, proclaims about Christ says there was nothing out of the ordinary about him. He was just a guy that looked like everybody else from a small insignificant village, just a poor carpenter's son. So that God's glory would be the one God would be the one that got the glory. So man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. So Jacob and Esau, they grow up and they become men. And Esau was his father's favorite. So he was kind of this hunter, this manly man, the natural leader. And it says that Jacob was his mother's favorite because he kind of hung around the house and helped with the household chores. And so as I read that, um, I wondered... Like, how aware was Jacob of that favoritism? And I'd honestly never thought about this before. Like, did he know that his father, Isaac, kind of favored Esau? And was that kind of a wound that he'd lived with throughout his life that, that may have kind of amplified this deceptive, manipulative spirit in him to, to get his father's attention in some way? I mean, I think there's probably something to that. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting side note, but so I want you to keep in mind as we go through this story here that God had told Rebecca that the older son would rule over the younger. So in some way she knew that Jacob was going to have to get the blessing that was intended for Esau. She knew that was supposedly the plan. So when Isaac gets old, it says that he starts to lose his eyesight. And it says, you know, kind of his days are numbered. So he tells his oldest Esau, he says, hey, son, you know, my time is drawing short. I need to pass the blessing on to you. And so he says, I want you to go out and, and hunt some game and, and cook up my favorite food just the way I like. And then I'm going to lay my hands on you and bless you. So Rebecca kind of hears about this plan. And so she calls Jacob over and is like, hey, this is our time. You know, so, so while he's away hunting, we're going to come in and cook dad's favorite. And, and she put... Esau's clothes on Jacob so that he would smell like him and even put some like furry stuff on his arms. He's kind of a hairy dude. And he goes in to Isaac, who's kind of blind and kind of pretends like he's Esau. And he pulls it off and he steals the blessing that was supposed to be his brother's. And it, it, you know, that's kind of a long story that you can kind of read on your own. But this event shows us several things. First, we see Rebecca and Jacob kind of taking matters into their own hands, right? Not really trusting God for the process. God was the one that said, hey, this is the way how it's going to go down. I'm going I'm to have the, the older ones serve the younger. So, uh, you know, he, he must have had a plan for how that was going to happen that probably didn't include them being deceptive and lying and, and all that stuff. But, but they weren't really interested in being patient and waiting around for things to turn out that way and God's timing. And we do that all the time ourselves, don't we? I mean, God tells us in his word, you know, I don't want you to have any other gods before me. I don't want you to try to find your satisfaction in anything else but me, because for one, you're not going to. But we try to do it anyways, don't we? God's word tells us, you know, so many things. He says, you know, this grace that I give you, it's a free gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it, but there's a part of us that kind of wants to work to earn it sometimes. 
He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but yet when life doesn't turn out the way we, we thought it would or we want it to, sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? Did you abandon me? What's going on? And he says, no, I'm here the whole time. And we try to find comfort in other things besides him. So we're very much like Rebecca and Jacob. At least I am. I don't know about y'all. but So Isaac and Esau figure out that they've been tricked. And they're obviously really upset. So Esau even is like, I'm going to kill that guy, right, if I can get my hands on him. And so the parents say, hey, buddy, you got to get out of here. And so we're going to send you away. Um, they send them to, back to their, their, their hometown, their ancestral home. And they say, hey, go talk to, uh, Rebecca says, go talk to my brother Laban. You know, he'll take you in. Go find a wife. So I want you to turn your, your Bibles over to Genesis 28. We'll pick up the story there in verse 10. Chapter 28, verse 10 says this, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So we see in verse 14 an affirmation of God's favor on Jacob. And, uh, and further, he says this, that all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And it's the exact same promise that was spoken to his grandfather, Abraham. And it's a, it's a prophecy, a direct prophecy, that one day the Savior of the world, Jesus, would be one of their future descendants because Jesus is the only one through whom the whole world could be blessed. In fact, the New Testament, if you were to turn over to Matthew, it starts with the genealogy, right? And it shows how we get from Abraham to Jesus. And it says, Abraham, in verse 2, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and then 40-plus generations later, there is Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise. So as the story continues, Jacob travels, and he encounters his uncle Laban, and he starts to work for him, and he notices um, he's got a hot daughter, okay? Doesn't say that in scripture, but I'm paraphrasing. So the younger one is Rachel, and he's, his heart just longs for Rachel. So he agrees to this contract, says, I'll work seven years for you, and at the end of that time, I get to marry Rachel. And he's like, okay, that's a deal. So he works the seven years, and he says it just flies by because he's so in love. And he gets to the end of that time, and he's like, where's my wife? And um, so they set up a wedding day, and then Jacob gets drunk. And he's laying in his tent, and then Laban takes the older daughter, Leah, that he didn't want, not, he didn't, not the dad, but the, that Jacob didn't want, and puts her in the tent. And he wakes up or whatever and ends up sleeping with Leah. So Laban kind of turns the cards. Now he's the deceptive one. And so now Jacob's kind of like tasting a little bit of his own medicine. So he wakes up. And don't you just love the Bible? 
Like, you think The Bachelor is raunchy? I mean, literally. That's what I love about it. For me, it's like one of those things that's like, that I just love that affirms the scripture to me is that if you really want to make this whole thing look good, wouldn't you take out all of that stuff about Noah getting drunk and Jacob getting drunk? I mean, it's just like, there's some body stuff in here, right? And it's in there. And I love that it's in there because it just shows that these folks are broken, just like us, right? It's a mess at times. And so... Now he has to marry Leah, and then he agrees to work seven more years to marry Rachel, and his sins are kind of catching up to him. And it looks like he's just in this, this giant kind of wrestling match with God, and that's actually exactly what happens next. And if you turn over in a, in a minute here, we're going to look at chapter 32, but let me just set the story up for you as, as the time passes between those chapters. After 20 years of being there um, in this kind of back in his ho- ancestral homeland, um, Jacob now has two wives. He has 11 sons and more daughters and livestock, and he starts to head home. And um, on, on one hand, he's got his father-in-law kind of at his heels because he kind of did some deceptive stuff again on the way out. So his, his father-in-law's kind of chasing him. On the other side, he's going towards his brother Esau that he hasn't seen in 20 years, and he's really worried about what that reception is going to be like, and he's kind of caught in this valley in between these two daunting options, right? He doesn't, can't stay where he is, but he doesn't really want to go where he's going either. So if you look at uh, chapter 32 now, starting in verse 28. Sorry, we're trying to cover like 10 chapters of material today, so sorry for the skipping around. Um, but... So starting in verse uh, 22, it says this, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. So, what do we take away from this interaction? Like, why does God wrestle with Jacob? Why couldn't he just speak to him? Or just appear in a dream to him and say what he wants to say? Like, why is there this wrestling scene that unfolds? What are your hypothesis on why this took place? What does this mean in the story? That when I watch WWE, it's really a religious experience? Is that what we're to take away? No. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. It's go time. Yeah. He said the whole, his whole life had been a struggle, all right? They'd been wrestling with God the whole time, and so he's finally like, hey, let's just duke it out here and settle this, right? Yeah. What else? Yeah, David? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like his own personal boot camp, right? I was just talking to, to, to Louis Gerdado, who's going into the army, and I was just like, man, you know, there's a part of me that, like, wishes I could have gone to boot camp, you know, just to prove that I could do it. And, and I think that's something probably every American male should do. Eric, would you agree? There you go. You know, you find out something about yourself when you wrestle and you struggle. That's a great point, Dave. Thanks for, thanks for that. This wrestling match, is, as Natasha said, is really just a metaphor for Jacob's life. He had been just wrestling with God for years and putting more trust in his own ability to manipulate and to deceive. Dave, are you laughing at me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But he had been putting his trust in his own ability, right, to manipulate things, to deceive, more so than trusting in God's plans. And this moment also reminds me that life is just a struggle. It's meant to be a struggle. Because when we enter into a relationship with God, his end mind and, and, and end goal in mind for us is to, is to shape us into the image of Christ, and sometimes because of our stubbornness and our pride and our selfishness, he literally has to kind of wrestle us down and pin us down and be like, no, like this is going to happen on my terms the way I want it to go. And, and we all encounter that discipline. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves like a good father. And I love how in this interaction it said God changed Jacob's name as well. Jacob's new name now would be Israel meaning he struggles with God. Because God is in the business of changing our identities, isn't he? The Bible says that when we enter into a relationship with him, that, that we become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We are a completely new entity. That's why it says that we're born again. And it had been a battle for Jacob. Lies and deception and manipulation. In the beginning of chapter 35, we see that Jacob's in Jacob's entourage that's traveling with him, that he kind of confronts him and says, there's some foreign gods that you guys have brought from our old land, probably like little statues, you know, that they were worshiping. And they had to break those and kind of make a new covenant with God. But, but the fact that they had to do that is just kind of further um, evidence that Jacob really just had blown it in some pretty big ways. I mean, his own family, his children are, are carrying these false idols, he, he's kind of failed in some ways as a husband, as a father, like we all do at times. When our, when our own kids and, and our spouse or whoever in our family can, can worship other things, he dropped the ball. And honestly, as you read through this story, and I would encourage you to just kind of go back and read through these things, there really isn't much in his story that would make you think, wow, that's a really honorable guy. Honestly, like the whole story is kind of just like a train wreck for him. Which is why God's faithfulness to him through it all is that much more unbelievable. So let's check out this final interaction um, over in, in 35. If you can flip over to there one last time here. Chapter 35, um, we'll start in verse 9. <clears throat> it says, After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. 
God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. So God is faithful to Jacob, even though he wasn't always very faithful to God. And in 2 Timothy puts it like this, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What does that mean? Well, in in New Testament times, post-Jesus' death and resurrection, what that means is that when we enter into relationship with God, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, and that we and, and, and Christ are literally one. And so, despite our flaws, God can't disown us because then it would be disowning himself as well. And so, instead, he shows graciousness to us. And we're covered over with the blood of Christ. And and God says that your sins no longer count against you, right? Even the sins that we haven't committed yet have already been paid for. The Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, God's blessing of Jacob. God's blessing of Jacob, despite his many flaws, was a foreshadowing of God's graciousness to us as well. A favor like Jacob that we haven't done anything to deserve. It's just been granted to us, bestowed upon us. We're just here to receive it, just be humble recipients to an unbelievable and unmerited gift. So like I said, um, For somebody that didn't do anything really that heroic, Jacob gets a lot of play in Scripture. Like his story kind of goes on and on. It doesn't really even end here today. He'll continue to be a character in the story as we move forward. But what are we supposed to take away from kind of this long and sordid tale? Um, Did anything jump out to you from the story today or anything you felt like God was kind of speaking to you this morning? What what are you going to take away from our time today? If it's nothing, then y'all really wasted your time risking your life to show up here today. So, yes. Kind of like you just said, I mean, Jacob wasn't the greatest, but God obviously planned for him. And um, so, kind of just to say for us, we have things that worry us ourselves sometimes or try to make ourselves think different, but ultimately, yeah. Yeah, God has plans for us, even if we don't feel like we're worthy of that. Or yeah. Just to see God so bad to Jacob, and finally just come back and have a face to face meeting. It wasn't until he meets with him face to face that then starts a turn. Yeah, yeah, his pursuit of him just kind of never gave up on him, even when he was just blatantly (laughs) doing his own thing. What else? Yeah, Kelly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, to not give up on other people who are flawed and, and, and God is still pulling for. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat>
Yeah, yeah, in that moment where we are a new creation, that like the, all those old flaws and sins are gone, and God doesn't see us as that person anymore, even if others might see us that way still. Yeah, anything else? Good. Yeah. Yeah, how quickly we want to take matters into our own hands and kind of not trust in God's timing, but, but kind of wrestle our own timing into it, right? I, I just think that there's something about this, this idea that we never know who God is going to choose. You know, and I know from years of doing Young Life, like sometimes you walk into a lunchroom or into club and you just think, oh man, that's the kid, you know, that's the one that's going to be the leader, that's going to really do some stuff, and I mean, it rarely turns out that way. Usually it's the kid that you're just not even paying that much attention to that ends up being this kid that becomes this faithful, sometimes lifelong friend of yours. You know, you think about guys like um, John Newton, who was the, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. He was a, a slave trader. That, that's, that was his career, his profession. And God just wrecked him and turned him into this pastor, this this writer, this hymn, hymn writer that, that we still sing about today, and you just never know. I mean, who would have known that Paul would have been the one that was God's mouthpiece? And so we have to have eyes, and we have to pray for eyes to see the world and see people um, with hope and potential um, sometimes, um, probably have a little bit more humility about our own goodness, right? Um, because we're capable of all kinds of stuff as well. Um, but I think that there's something that we can learn from, from kind of this humble and lucid moment that Jacob had in the midst of the struggle. Can I, kind of was, he was in that valley between those two choices of, of being away from his old family and, and all that stuff that was behind him and getting ready to face his brother Esau. He does have this, this moment where he prays when he's kind of at the end of his ropes. I want you to look at, at chapter 32 if you still have your scripture open and, or else you can just listen as I read it. But he actually stops and he prays, starting in verse uh, 9. It says, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the members, the mothers, um, and with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And, and guys, that's my prayer for us this morning. I love what he says there in verse 10. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I mean, aren't we all unworthy of that? As we come to the communion table this morning, um, I just pray that just that mindset would kind of be on our hearts uh, today, that we would just be grateful, grateful to be counted among his children, grateful that when we are faithless, he is faithful, even when we don't deserve it. Um, I would say we'd be good with just a couple servers, and maybe if the, one of the third servers or so could do the gluten-free um, stuff, I think we'll be okay with this crowd this morning. Um, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your 